Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Jane Clayson, and this is On Point. Federal social distancing guidelines have expired, and states are taking control. And while tens of thousands of Americans are still getting sick from coronavirus, President Trump this week praised the government for a job well done. I don't think anybody's done a better job with testing, with ventilators, with all of the things that we've done, and our our, uh, death totals, our numbers per million people are really uh, very, very strong. We're very proud of the job we've done. The majority of Americans support stay-at-home orders, but some are still protesting, like a group in Michigan who stormed the state capitol on Thursday. We're one of the few states in the United States that have the restrictions that we have to the extreme level, and there's a right way to go about this, and there's a wrong way, and it's, it's, too, it's gone too far. And former Vice President Joe Biden responds to a sexual assault allegation against him by a former staffer. Would you please go on the record with the American people? Did you sexually assault Tara Reid? No, it is not true. I'm saying unequivocally, it never, never happened. And it didn't. It never happened. It's our week in the news, and we have a great panel to break it all down for us. With us from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is Erin Haynes. She's editor-at-large for The 19th, a nonprofit news organization reporting at the intersection of gender, politics, and policy. Erin, welcome back to One Point. Great to have you. Thanks so much. It's good to be with you. And Ben White, he's chief economic correspondent and author of Morning Money for Politico. He joins us from Englewood, New Jersey. Nice to have you, Ben. Jane, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Thank you. And joining us from Washington, D.C., Sarah Cliff. She's a New York Times investigative reporter focusing on the health care system. Thank you for being with us, Sarah. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So let's begin today with uh, the federal guidelines regarding social distancing. They expired at midnight. President Trump says he has no intention of extending the measures. Some states are extending their restrictions and others are not. Aaron Haynes, let's start with you. What should we expect today as states start to take control here? Well, I mean, I think it is a concern because we know that the majority of the country has not been tested. I mean, this is a national pandemic that would seem to require a national response, especially since we know that testing is going to be a huge part of the criteria for, for how safe it really is for the country to reopen. And so leaving that decision up to states and local governments or even businesses like processing plants where we're seeing you know, that there are so many uh, cases, uh, you know, makes the reopening process one that is going to be disjointed and and will make the recovery phase of this pandemic much like the past several weeks, with some states probably doing better or worse than others. In fact, 35 states will have eased restrictions in some form by today, even though it doesn't appear that any state meets White House guidelines that call for this 14-day downward trajectory of COVID cases before any state can open. Sarah, how do you see this patchwork of, of contradictory rules across this country? I think it's going to be hard to tell for a few weeks what this all means. What we know about coronavirus is it has about a 14-day or so incubation period. That's why that 14-day decline is so important. So public health experts say we might expect things to look fine for the first few weeks as people start going to restaurants, start getting their hair cut again, start going out and about. It's really in mid-May we're going to see what this reopening means. And like Aaron said, you, you can expect a real difference of results depending on where you live. You're just seeing across the country, my colleagues at the New York Times have been tracking this, just a huge patchwork of what's open and and how fast that's moving. In some places, it's houses and worship. In some places, it's retail and beauty salons. It's just a huge, huge patchwork. And we're not going to know the results of this experiment we're entering into probably till mid-May or so. And we'll see whether we see spikes of coronavirus, spikes of hospitalization in these places that have moved faster towards reopening. Well, this week we hit a grim milestone of one million cases of coronavirus in the United States and more than 63,000 deaths. 
Uh, This week, there was also a glimmer of hope, however, and a potential breakthrough in the treatment of coronavirus. Remdesivir is the name of the drug. And here is Dr. Anthony Fauci sharing good news about it with the American people. The Data and Safety Monitoring Board on Monday afternoon contacted me on April 27th, first on Friday, the week before, and then again on April 27th, and notified the study team, namely the multiple investigators who are doing the study throughout the world, that the data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut, significant, positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery. This is really quite important. In fact, a trial of this antiviral drug reduced the median recovery time of COVID patients in the hospital from 15 days to 11 days. Sarah, what's the significance of this announcement? So it certainly is positive news. We started the coronavirus pandemic not knowing about any drugs that could treat this, and we're starting to see some initial promising signs from remdesivir and these clinical trials that are underway at the same time, you know, these results, while they are exciting, they're also somewhat modest. You know, we're talking about reducing the mortality rate slightly. The reduction in mortality rate in this study actually was not statistically significant. So we're not actually sure whether it reduces mortality rate. You're seeing a decline in hospital days, which is a positive sign, but you know, we're not talking about the, the real um, thing we, we are working towards is a vaccine or something that can really keep people out of the hospital in the first place. And I think one other thing to note is that these results, they've not been peer reviewed yet. They're still preliminary. These are the results we often would not even see um, in typical times that drug trials have to go through much more rigor. So while these are signs of progress and they are positive, the public health experts, myself, my colleagues have been talking to, they do caution that we don't really know the impact of this drug yet. And it's going to take more testing and more time to get a sense of how how meaningful having a drug like remdesivir available is going to be. In the meantime, the FDA is issuing emergency authorizations for this drug uh, to be used. Aaron, when will it be available? Do we know? Uh, uh, no, I think that they are uh, moving on that. But, uh, you know, I think uh, much to Sarah's point, I mean, the cautious optimism here uh, about a none, nonetheless a real development especially with a vaccine being kind of a long ways off, uh, you know, I think that we continue to monitor all of the progress that the medical community is making at, at really a remarkable pace to, to fight this battle. And, and it looks like um, that FDA approval may be the next step in that. Well, uh, anything uh, is welcome and can, can't come fast enough because the U.S. passed 60,000 coronavirus deaths this week on Wednesday. That's more than three months earlier than had been predicted by models used by the White House. Uh, mm-hmm. Sarah, I mean, what do these numbers indicate to you based on the expectation that the White House had set? So I I think one of the things we've learned over the past few months is that the modeling is very unpredictable. You know, we know so little about coronavirus. We we knew a little, very little going into this about how well social distancing would work and how these interventions would play out. Um, So I think what you're seeing, you know, in some cases, there were early predictions of of millions of deaths and, and a quite severe pandemic, and we haven't hit those. But it's also the case we're constantly learning that it's, that the coronavirus deaths are outpacing some of the projections we're seeing. So, you know, we hit this pretty grim milestone of 60,000 deaths um, at the beginning of May. In your, and again, it goes back to what will happen in the future. It depends a lot on the next few weeks and what we see happening as different states um, create these reopening orders. So I think we, we've learned that something we've never experienced before it's incredibly hard to model. And a lot of folks at different universities and institutions are making their best guesses. But at the end of the day, we're learning this is a really unpredictable and unprecedented situation that we're in. The administration uh, said this week that it has exceeded testing goals in the month of April. There is, uh, They said that there was even excessive testing capacity at the state level. I want to play this clip. This is Jared Kushner on Fox News on Wednesday saying the federal government res- response to COVID-19 is, quote, a great success story. And he also addressed concerns about testing capacity that's needed to reopen parts of this economy. 
I always find that we see the leading indicators and, and often the media sees the lagging indicators, but the leading indicators are testing are extraordinarily positive uh, and I'm very confident that we have all the testing we need to start opening the country in accordance with the safety guidelines that President uh, Trump, uh, the Vice President, Dr. Birx and Dr. Fauci laid out uh, on April 19th. Governors and mayors and public health officials continue to say that, yes, there is progress in some areas, but there are still supply shortages and there's confusion uh, over who is responsible for what. Uh, ben White, jump in here. Um, you know, and by the way, who's going to pay for it? How do you see this? Well, I don't really understand what Jared Kushner is saying when he comes out there and says we have, uh, you know, excess testing capacity, uh, enough testing capacity. It certainly doesn't seem to be the message coming from governors and local officials. Um, and it doesn't, uh, you know, I defer to Sarah on exactly uh, where we are in testing, but it does seem disconnected from the reality you're hearing from uh, state and local officials that there aren't enough tests uh, to test, certainly obviously to test everyone, but to test at the level that would make people feel comfortable about coming out of their uh, shutdowns and going back to bars and restaurants and going back to work. I mean, my beat is the economics beat. And, uh, you know, you can't reopen the economy halfway when people don't feel comfortable. You can say we're relaxing all these restrictions. It doesn't mean that people are actually going to engage in the activities that we'd like to see them engage in uh, to make the economy go faster. And you can't do that if you don't have enough testing and people don't feel comfortable. So, Sarah Cliff, I mean, is there excessive capacity? And, And where are we in this fight? What are the new projections looking two months, three months, six months down the road? So I, I think there's certainly more capacity than we had at the start of this. There was an incredible, incredible testing crunch at the beginning of coronavirus that really dates back to a number of botched tests that the CDC sent out. We've certainly gotten further than that. Um, but in terms of having excess capacity, that is not what I hear when I talk to Doctors who, you know, are looking to test patients in the hospital, when I talk to public health officials, they don't really see it that way. And again, like Ben said, it's just been a story of shortage after shortage. These tests, you know, are not that simple. They require specific swabs and they require certain reagents that are used in um, mixing up the tests. So it is it is a challenge to get all those supplies at the same time. So I, I don't see the excess capacity in the system that Jared Kushner has been talking about. We are talking all things COVID-19, the government efforts to reopen the U.S. economy, the politics of the response. A great panel this hour, Aaron Haynes, Ben White, Sarah Cliff. Stick with me. Listeners, we'll be back after this break with much more. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures, there are other things that are going to affect your performance. And maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while. And Thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. 
At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. We're discussing the week in the news this hour. And with us, Politico's Ben White, Aaron Haynes from the 19th, and Sarah Cliff of the New York Times. Well, as states are slowly opening up, all eyes have been on Georgia. And we had a listener, Donovan, who left us a voicemail about that from Smyrna, Georgia. Governor Brian Kemp is opening Georgia as of tonight, citing false claims of victory, widespread testing sites, which we don't have, all because he didn't want to have to pay unemployment for folks affected by lockdown. It's terrifying to find that human life means so little to our governor and his supporters. A lot of uh, thoughts on both sides of this. Some want it to be open. Others want it to stay shut. Um, Let's get to this. I I was reminded this week, our colleague Jack Beatty reminded me of the first line of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, which reads, April is the cruelest month. Uh, And it sure feels that way as you look at the devastating COVID death rates and certainly these new economic numbers, Ben White. The U.S. economy has suffered its worst quarter since 2008. New GDP numbers show the economy shrinking nearly 5 percent in the first quarter of 2020. And that was really a reflection of the end of the first quarter. We're now in the second quarter, and it's surely to be much worse. Ben, what's the significance of this of this contraction? Uh, it's very significant. And you're right, that 5% number is just a foretaste of the awful number we're going to get for the second quarter, which will probably be a decline of 30 to 40%. I would also say that the first quarter numbers are likely to be revised lower. It really didn't take into account much of the data from March. So we always get uh, revisions that'll get revised lower. Second quarter will be something like 30%. Remember, these are on an annualized basis. So you really have to divide the number by four to get uh, exactly where we are. But the fact of the matter is, you know, the economy ground to, uh, you know, a near halt as we entered into these shutdowns. And obviously, we'll talk at some point about the jobless rate and the jobless claims, and they're, they're terrible. Uh, and we are in a serious economic contraction. The big question is, how quickly can we get out of it? And that's where you get into this big debate about how we open, when we reopen. Obviously, from an economic perspective, you want to open as fast as you can and get people back to work and spending money and getting the economy going again. But the big risk is we do it in a haphazard way. We do it too fast. We get uh, re-outbreaks of the virus in places like Georgia, uh, and then we have to shut down again, uh, and we get another big economic hit. So there are a lot of folks in the economic world who think uh, we should be doing it a little more slowly and carefully and with better track and uh, tracing in place, and then we can open up the economy in a real way and people can feel confident in it. But we're in a bad spot, uh, no question. People are, are hurting and are going to continue to be hurting, uh, and hopefully you know, we can get the economy reopened some point in a safe way. Here are the unemployment numbers. 3.8 million U.S. workers filing jobless claims last week. That means an astonishing 30 million Americans have filed for unemployment over the last six weeks. That's one in five Americans out of work. Aaron, this underscores yet again just how dire the economic conditions are in this country. We haven't seen job numbers this bad since the Great Depression. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jane. And thank you for bringing up my home state of Georgia, which is among several uh, across the country reopening today, including across the South, which is America's largest region and home to the largest population of African-Americans. And and so, you know, there is a lot of concern uh, for uh, among uh, the activists and lawmakers that I interview uh, saying that it's a false choice and possibly a death sentence for residents across the region between going back to work or prioritizing their health. And we know that women and minorities are among those having the most difficult time securing things like business loans. And they're in the same groups that are being disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. Well, and, and, and many economists say the job losses are actually far worse uh, than these numbers indicate. The Economic Policy Institute found that about 50 percent more people then were counted actually qualified for benefits, but they were either stuck in the application process or they didn't even try because the process was too formidable. Um, Ben, how do you see those numbers? 
Yeah, I think, I don't know if that EPI study is uh, completely accurate or not, but I do think the numbers are definitely higher, that there uh, would be more jobless claims if there weren't such backlogs at the state level, if it weren't so difficult, uh, and if some people didn't just give up. I mean, this sort of reminds us that we have a 50-state network of unemployment systems, um, some of which are kind of up to speed and good, some of which are really old and outdated and difficult, but there's no question that people have had a very hard time um, getting uh, you know, their benefits approved and sent out. So the number is unquestionably higher than the 30 million that we've seen. I don't know if it's 50 percent higher or what the exact number is, but uh, there are more people in this country who qualify for unemployment benefits who have been unable to get them so far and some who have applied and been accepted and haven't gotten the money yet. So the picture is even worse than uh, it looks like on mm-hmm. paper right now. There's no doubt about mm-hmm. that. And Jane, it, if I could, if, please. Jane, if I could just add to that, I mean, today is May first. The rent and the mortgage is due right. for millions of Americans That's across right. the country as we sit here today. And so, you know, there are also Americans who are still waiting to get their stimulus check. And and I think that as Congress continues to respond to this crisis, you're seeing more proposals that are aimed at addressing uh, these kinds of issues in particular. And I'm, I'm women senators and former 2020 Democratic presidential hopefuls like Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren. Amy Klobuchar, Kirsten Gillibrand are all trying to raise awareness around other issues, uh, you know, of, of economic importance like food insecurity, child care for parents who may be returning to work, and then the racial health and economic disparities that, that are going to be here even after this pandemic. You mentioned people waiting for their stimulus checks. They have not come for a lot of people. And this week in Washington, backlash was growing uh, with regard to how the federal paycheck protection program is being run. Uh, I want to play this clip. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin addressing uh, growing concerns of stories of big corporations getting small business loans while small businesses are struggling to get the assistance just to survive. I know the press has commented on a a lot of big companies that inappropriately took the money, and we've been very clear. We announced today that any loan over $2 million will have a full review for forgiveness before they're repaid, because this is the story of small business here. And I am so pleased to see how this is working. Okay. Uh, An audit of companies that received more than $2 million, Ben White. I mean, this was money that was supposed to be a lifeline for, you know, mom and pop shops, other small businesses. But I'm reading this week organizations like the L.A. Lakers receiving a $4.6 million loan. How can this happen? Yeah, well, it can happen because there are a lot of loopholes in the program. I mean, in the case of the Lakers, uh, you know, you think of them as a, uh, you know, giant, iconic, uh, wealthy NBA sports franchise whose players like LeBron James are paid huge amounts of money, but they actually have fewer than 500 total employees. So they technically qualify. And then you have things like, you know, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and Shake Shack, and they're doing it through subsidiaries with less than 500 employees, which is one of the loopholes. And in all of this, it's important to remember that a small business is defined basically however the SBA wants to define it. It's not necessarily 500 or fewer. So I I think when we look at the Paycheck Protection Program, great idea, important. We need to get money to uh, small businesses, but they got it up and running really quickly without a lot of infrastructure in place, not a lot of checks on who's getting the money, uh, not a lot of disclosure on who's getting it. So uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin has sent his top deputy political reported this yesterday, Justin Muzinich, over to try to fix this, uh, make it work better. Uh, I think there are ways to do that. And I think it's good that Mnuchin came out and said that big companies taking advantage of this in ways they shouldn't uh, could face you know, criminal charges. Uh, so they're trying to crack down on it. But there have been fundamental problems uh, with the rollout of the program. And it keeps running out of money. So Congress is going to have to give more money. So good program, bad rollout, significant issues with uh, how it's been implemented. We'll see if they can clean it up and fix it. In fact, the federal website taking loan applications for the PPP had glitches, technical glitches, all sorts of problems. Only about 23 percent of applications were successfully submitted. Uh, Aaron Haynes, uh, Secretary Mnuchin is scrambling to tighten eligibility requirements. How's the White House responding to all this? Uh, the White House is, is continuing to kind of tout their success as, as the country is looking for facts and, and empathy and, and, frankly, relief. I mean, voters are seeing this inequality that has been exposed by the crisis on full display. And, and this pandemic will be viewed. Uh, it's going to be the lens through which many voters view this election. And uh, the economy in, in a normal year is usually a top, if not the top priority uh, for voters every presidential cycle. And this year is no exception. So, I mean, as 
this this crisis is really bringing that into even more sharp relief uh, this year. So uh, we heard several stories uh, this week about um, rehiring workers and how that's been a challenge for some businesses across the country. Um, here's Kurt Huffman. He owns 20 restaurants in Oregon. He had to lay off about 700 employees. He told CNN that he's having a hard time bringing those employees back to work. And here's why. Our employees are confronted with a decision, which is, do I want to go back into work an environment that I'm not exactly positive is safe because there's no testing available and make less money. So the obvious answer is no way. Why would you do that? You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't do that if I was them. So Ben White, the federal stimulus fund gives workers an extra six hundred dollars a week. That's through July, which means that unemployment now pays equal to or more than average weekly wages in 38 states. So a lot of workers can actually earn more on unemployment benefits, which highlights, you know, this wage problem, this wage inequality that we had long before the crisis hit. But as Aaron said, you know, this is uh, accentuating some of the problems we had before. What do you see in this, Ben White? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it highlights that we don't have a high enough minimum wage in a lot of places. Uh, you don't want to be in a scenario where you encourage people not to work, but it's completely understandable that they would not feel comfortable going back in this environment, um, you know, not just because at least through July, they can make a little bit more by collecting enhanced unemployment. But uh, if they don't feel comfortable about the testing and about their health, uh, they're not going to go back either way. So we've got, you know, a wage, a minimum wage problem, uh, and we've got a uh, health and comfortability problem with employees uh, not feeling comfortable going back to work. I think most would uh, choose work over staying at home, uh, but not if they don't feel safe about their health and not if they're at least at this point making more than they would if they went back. The problem with thinking that way is that this is temporary. As you mentioned, it expires July 31st unless Congress uh, extends it. So at some point, uh, folks are going to have to need need to get back to work. So, you know, God willing, by then uh, we have better testing and tracing. And when that money runs out, they'll feel more comfortable about going back. And Aaron Haynes, is Congress looking at more money here? I think that Congress is, they're being urged to, to, to look at more money, uh, especially from a lot of the groups who are saying, you know, either the government has got to encourage um, workplaces to create uh, that safer environment or provide assistance to people so that they aren't having to make the very difficult choice of whether to, um, you know, go back to work with, you know, even as they still have concerns looming about how that could impact their health. Sarah Cliff, how do you see this as a health reporter? Yeah, so I've been following this a lot from the hospital perspective this week, because a lot of hospitals are actually small businesses that are struggling. I'm thinking of small rural hospitals, you know, maybe 20, even as small as 12 bed hospitals. And those hospitals, they've kind of struggled through this. They've seen their revenue take a nosedive, you know, fall by as much 50, as 50% as elective surgery is canceled. Folks are skipping out on routine care they would normally see. And these small businesses, um, they've struggled to apply for the Paycheck Protection Act. In some cases, they don't qualify because they're county-owned or they found it too difficult to navigate. So I think one of the really interesting statistics we saw in the economic data we've been talking about is about half of the downturn in Q1, the economic downturn we were talking about, came from the healthcare sector. So it's kind of a surprising moment to be in a pandemic where healthcare is being provided, you know, in spades to a lot of coronavirus patients. But at the same time, you see this sector that powers one fifth of the economy just in a total spiral and a downturn. And a lot of small businesses that are part of that sector of the economy really struggling through all of this. Ben White, do you want to wrap us up on this point? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting Sarah brings that up. Uh, it was sort of surprising to me to see that number. And a lot of that is, you know, the cancellation of elective surgeries and a lot of things that make hospitals, these small businesses money uh, have just gone away. So you would think uh, healthcare spending would be up at a period like this. The fact that it's dragging on the economy is quite remarkable. Uh, and, you know, as they reopen and elective surgeries come back, that number should go up a little bit. Um, but the fact of the matter is we are in a terrible economic situation. Uh, Congress does need to approve more funds for small businesses and for individuals and probably for state and local governments. We've not done enough. We need to do more uh, in order to uh, ensure that we can have a decent economic recovery from this. 
Well, thank you all. Before we go to the break, uh, let me get this in. Uh, We heard this morning from presumptive Democratic nominee, Vice President Joe Biden. He is answering questions today um, about a sexual assault allegation made against him by a former staffer. In a statement before the interview, Biden called on the National Archives to release any records related to a complaint by a woman named Tara Reid from his Senate office at this time. And here is Vice President Biden. I'm confident there's nothing. No one ever brought it to the attention of me 27 years ago. This is any assertion at all. No one that I'm aware of in my campaign, at, excuse me, my, my Senate office at the time, is aware of any such uh, request and, uh, uh, or any such complaint. Uh, and uh, and so the, I, 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 I'm not worried about it at all. If there is a complaint, that's where it would be. That's where it would be filed. And if it's there, put it out. But I've never seen it. Aaron Haynes, uh, this week, two more women uh, have come forward to corroborate uh, part of the allegation made by uh, Ms. Reed. Biden is insisting it's not true. Uh, where, does, where do we stand here in this campaign and, and beyond? Well, I think that where we stand is that, uh, you know, up until this point, the broader conversation uh, around um issues of sexual assault, you know, the whole Me Too era uh, has been largely left out of this primary cycle, but it is at least now, uh, for now, at the center. And so, you know, we saw Vice President Biden this morning, he was consistent, he was measured, he was as steady in his live remarks as he was in his written ones. And so I think the question uh, now is not how we as a political journalism class interpret this, but how will voters, particularly women who make up the majority of the electorate, respond to his speaking out? I mean, we've spent months talking about electability, and now we're focusing on believability. And and there was a lot to unpack then, and we should be thoughtful and thorough as we report on this story and this issue in the months to come. Here is former Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. She endorsed Joe Biden this week. She joined him in a virtual town hall on Tuesday, focusing on the impact of the coronavirus on women. Just think of what a difference it would make right now if we had a president who not only listened to the science, put facts over fiction, but brought us together, showed the kind of compassion and caring that we need from our president and which Joe Biden has been exemplifying throughout his entire life. Aaron Haynes, uh, wrap us up here in about 10 seconds before our break. Uh, The significance of all this, Hillary Clinton's endorsement, how do you see it? Uh, Hillary Clinton, obviously the highest profile woman, arguably, uh, to endorse Joe uh, Joe Biden in in recent days. But I mean, you just look at April and and the many endorsements uh, from women, high profile women in politics. uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Dolores Huerta, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto and Elizabeth Warren. I mean, quite quite the parade of of Democratic women uh, backing him. I think that 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 is also notable and interesting in this moment. We're looking at the week in the news with a great panel. Aaron Haynes, Ben White, Sarah Cliff. Stick with me. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. We'll be right back. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. Coming up on Monday, we're talking about how to reopen the economy safely. Have you already started to see businesses reopen in your state? Are you getting ready to go back to work yourself? How do you feel about that? What measures do you want to see in place before returning to, quote, normal? Tell us your story, 617 
1-800-273-8383. Now we continue with our weekly news roundtable. We're talking about the economic, health, and political developments in the COVID-19 pandemic. With us to do that are Sarah Cliff of The New York Times, Aaron Haynes from The 19th, and Politico's Ben White. Uh, let me ask you all about these very interesting questions Uh, that have been circulating for weeks about where the coronavirus actually originated inside China. The U.S. intelligence community this week announced that it does not believe that uh, corona was a man-made or genetically modified virus, but that it will investigate whether the coronavirus started by accident at a lab in Wuhan, China. Uh, Sarah Cliff, start us off here. Uh, What do you make of these questions, these Um, allegations that the president himself addressed uh, this week. I mean, I think this is an area that has become a little bit rife with conspiracy theory and the fact that we we still don't understand fully the origins of the virus. Those do remain a bit of a mystery that becomes a bit of a fertile ground at this point for folks making up their own theories about where this had come from. Um, So I think there's certainly a lot of focus on this right now. And maybe there will be even even more once we get past fighting coronavirus and there's more resources available. But right now, I mean, there's no information that suggests this is a man-made virus um, that was synthesized in Wuhan. Um, There's just no information or scientific consensus that suggests that this was man-made. Everything we know suggests that coronavirus evolved naturally, um, as many diseases do. And yet, here's President Trump at the White House on Thursday saying that he has seen evidence that coronavirus did originate in a lab in Wuhan, China. The director of national intelligence said the statement earlier in the day uh, that the uh, U.S. intelligence agencies are rigorously examining the origins, but they have not reached a conclusion. We're going to see where it comes from. And, you know, look, you know every theory. You had the theory from the lab, you had the theory from many different, the bats, and the type of bat and the bat is 40 miles away, so it couldn't have been here and it couldn't have been there. And uh, we have, a, there's a lot of theories. But yeah, we have people looking at it very, very strongly. Aaron Haynes, that's a very interesting statement by the President of the United States at the White House. What did you make of it? Interesting is, is certainly a good word for it. I mean, uh, you have the President alluding with, with really. Um, no proof of, of, of these things. But, I mean, we know that, that the briefings have become a stand-in for the president's rallies. Uh, he lacks uh, the huge crowds that are typical of those rallies, but he is still able to, to kind of mix it up with the press and also get his message directly to voters. Look, there's still so much that we don't know about this virus, uh, but but the intelligence and medical communities have, have not confirmed uh, these things that, that uh, the president is alluding to, but but clearly uh, these are the kinds of things that could potentially resonate with his base. And, you know, um, this is shaping up to be a, a re-election campaign talking point. The president this week uh, said that he would invoke the Defense Production Act in other news, uh, to force meat processing plants to stay open during the COVID pandemic. At least two dozen meat packing plants have closed in the last couple of months. Dozens of uh, processing employees have died. Uh, there are real questions here about safety on the assembly lines. Ben White, uh, real questions about food chain disruptions. What do you make of the significance of the president using the DPA uh, in this manner? Well, I frankly think it's a little strange uh, that he would choose to deploy the DPA here. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, you want the food supply to be working and people to be able to get the various meats that they like to eat. But you would hope that he would have used it to uh, nationalize supply chains on uh, testing and uh, tracing and and, and medical health issues to get us to a better point uh, on the health front rather than invoke it uh, in this uh, environment where, you know, we've seen a lot of meat plant workers get sick. Uh, And it's not clear to me the extent to which doing this is going to make more people sick. Um, So, you know, I have some sympathy with the idea that we want to protect the food chains and not have, you know, stores running out of food that people like to buy. But, 
his selective use of the DPA for this rather than some of the medical needs uh, that he could have done earlier uh, strikes me as probably not the best application of uh, the DPA. And there's plenty of criticism that will be uh, heaped upon him during the campaign for how he has deployed this uh, federal authority uh, in ways that maybe were not the best to um, focus on the health front of the problem. Sarah Cliff, the the latest closure of a meat processing plant uh, was yesterday at the Tyson's Food Plant in Nebraska. It's not apparently that there isn't supply here. Is it that there are not enough workers to process the food? I'm curious as a health reporter how you see this. And this feels to me like another version of the debate about, you know, do we reopen and or do we stay closed longer and bear the economic consequences of that? And I think one of the things we've seen, my colleagues who are tracking the number of coronavirus cases and keeping an eye on clusters is we have seen that meatpacking plants have become kind of somewhat similar, but not to the same degree as nursing homes, a hotspot for outbreaks. And so I think you see this is the exact same tension that we saw that we talked about earlier with do we reopen, get people back to work, or do we keep people home longer? I think there is a slightly different layer here where we are talking about the food supply chain. But at the same time, one of the kind of odd things we're seeing here is that in some ways there are worries about shortages. In other cases, we're hearing stories of oversupply of um, potato farmers in Idaho dumping their potatoes because restaurants aren't buying or millions of eggs being discarded because people aren't going out to eat anymore. So you know, one way to deal with this is keeping the meat plants open. Another might be some creative thinking about how to redeploy all that food that typically goes to restaurants to um, you know, individuals at home who could be eating it. Mm. Aaron Hayes, uh, in other news this week, um, news outlets reported that President Trump received more than a dozen classified briefings during January and February about a potential pandemic that could cost many lives and devastate the economy. Uh, I'm curious what you know about this. The president was playing down that threat during that time, but it's now clear that those briefings were part of a broader collection of early signals that probably could have been used to to contain this outbreak. Uh, what do you know about this? I, right. So the president is on Twitter, you know, kind of de- decrying these reports, even though they've been reported by, by multiple outlets. Um, and, and I think, you know, the message that we're hearing from the White House is, is that really um, trying to look back or kind of evaluate the administration's response in real time is not productive or not not what we should be focused on right now. But I think it is important to raise these questions because we have seen uh, the U.S. is leading the world in the number of coronavirus cases. And so, uh, you know, to the extent that that is something that could have been mitigated or or how we could have responded to this better or earlier, I think is a question that, that a lot of the American people are asking and, and, want, it, and want to know. This week, um, Vice President Mike Pence was criticized uh, roundly for touring the Mayo Clinic without a mask, despite the famed uh, facilities rules requiring one. And in fact, everybody around him was wearing one. Um, Here he is. Here's what Vice President Pence said about why he refused to wear it. With regard to uh, wearing a mask, I'm tested on a regular basis. And um, when the CDC issued mask guidelines, it was to make sure that people that have contracted the coronavirus and may not have symptoms wouldn't unintentionally convey it uh, to others. And so um, uh, and so the fact that I'm tested regularly and people around me are all tested regularly, I knew that was not a risk for me. So, Sarah Cliff, that was earlier in the week. Uh, yesterday, the vice president did wear a face mask to a production plant that he visited in Indiana. Uh, but there was quite a backlash earlier in the week. What did you see in this story? There was. And I think one of the things I saw in this story were some shifting explanations of why Vice President Pence wasn't wearing a mask. We heard from um, his wife, Karen Pence, that they hadn't received the guidance um, that they should be wearing masks at Mayo Clinic before the visit. There was a tweet from Mayo Clinic um, since deleted saying that they had provided the guidance. So we've seen some shifting explanations uh, of why Vice President Pence wasn't wearing a mask. I do think it is notable when he visited a factory in Indiana the day afterwards, he he was wearing a mask. I think the backlash certainly may have gotten to the vice president's office. And we did see a change in policy 
Um, you know, I did want to point out some public health experts. They have, um, you know, taken a bit of issue with this explanation of why not to wear a mask because even if you are tested at regular intervals, we don't quite know how often Vice President Pence is being tested. There is a possibility it could be picked up in between those intervals. There's, you know, nothing to say that it couldn't, especially if you were going around not wearing a mask. So that explanation from the vice president's office, it didn't quite hold up to some scrutiny from public health experts. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get this story in. Uh, it, it was a, a terrible story this week uh, about the suicide of a top ER doctor in, in New York. And it reveals sort of the toll this this crisis is taking on frontline workers. Uh, Dr. Lorna Breen was a top ER physician at New York Presbyterian Allen Hospital, died this week by suicide. Uh, she'd been treating COVID patients. She became a patient herself. And her doctor, her uh, father, Dr. Philip Breen, spoke to CNN about the psychological effect of both uh, treating patients and becoming a patient herself. Um, it, it took a toll uh, on her. And, and here he is. There's going to be a gathering uh, publication evidence that uh, this virus affects a person's mind as well as their physical being, like their lungs, and that it is has worked on the brains of people who have been sick without us even identifying it to begin with. And uh, Lorna would be an example of somebody who is a poster child for proving that this virus is indeed working on people's minds and psychological equilibrium. Sarah Cliff, it, it really is an interesting and important point, uh, the fact that we don't know the full impact of the virus on the human body, Sarah. It, it really is, and it's a really tragic story of what happened to this doctor and an important reminder of the just grueling conditions that emergency workers, particularly those in New York City, are working under. It is not surprising to me that, that we might see... PTSD among these workers who have been working day in and day day out, making some really tough decisions about how to care for patients and losing more patients than they are used to. So I think this doctor's suicide, it's very tragic. And I think it's a bit of a wake-up call to think about the healthcare professionals who are out there on the front line day after day providing this care. And then on top of that, you know, are some of them aren't able to go home to their families because they're too worried about infecting them. So they're renting hotel rooms or they're staying in their basement. It is a really challenging situation these doctors are working in and one that, uh, like this doctor's father suggests, could take a real toll on them that we don't quite understand. Let me end here. Uh, ben White, um, you know, we're, we're moving toward um, reopening in many states, Healthcare workers still on the front lines doing the best they can. It, it is hard in many places. People, uh, as Aaron mentioned, you know, it's May 1st. The rent is due. Um, a lot of people are struggling. Millions and millions have struggled. Um, is there light at the end of the tunnel? Are there green shoots out there that we can look to? for examples of things that are going right. Um, is there something that you'd point us to as we end this hour of a lot of bad news um, that yeah. that might bring people up in this moment? Yeah, yeah, it's really hard. And it's hard uh, in anybody reporting on this and writing about it to find the green shoots and to uh, inject in the uh, note of positivity. Uh, and, I, and I'm not going to be great at doing it right now, but I will say this, um, you know, we're going to get another jobless claims number this coming Thursday. It's going to be lower than the last one, which was lower than the one before that. So at at least the curve on that front is going down and hopefully will continue to go down. Unfortunately, the day after we'll get the uh, employment report for April and that'll look terrible and be depressing again. But I do think if you want to look at positives, at least look at one that we're not going up in unemployment claims. We're going down uh, and that eventually the economy will reopen uh, and that we'll get ahead of this virus and that there is hope and that there is uh, an economy we can go back to eventually. Uh, But it's really difficult and really painful right now. And it is quite understandable that it's taking a mental toll, particularly on the frontline workers, but everybody else too stuck at home and frustrated and worried. so everybody is not alone in this. And if there are people who are you know, depressed and feeling this way, reach out, connect with people as best you can. It's really important we stay connected uh, at this moment. Sarah Cliff, help us uh, see some light uh, that, that you're looking at. So one positive indicator I looked at when I first saw it, I thought it was negative, but I think it actually is a reason for optimism is this figure I talked about earlier about half of the economic decline in Q1 coming from a decline in healthcare spending, which is surprising in a pandemic, 
the reason it makes me a little bit optimistic is that's the spending I would expect to bounce back more so than other sectors. Mm. You expect, you know, the knee replacement patient who had to delay their surgery to eventually get that surgery more so than the diner who didn't go out to dinner a number of nights because restaurants have been closed. So I look at that indicator and think that's a sector. It's going to take a while, but that's a sector that we could expect to bounce back a little more quickly than some of the other sectors seeing a downturn. So it makes me optimistic that that is where about half of the decline is coming from. Thank you. Aaron Hayes, you get the last word. Give us a green shoot in your mind. Well, uh, a, a couple of green shoots. Uh, you know, I think that we all look for kind of signs of normalcy in, in this pandemic. And so I will say two things. One, attention to sons and daughters. You have nine days until Mother's Day. So <laughs> order your flowers and mail your card now to make sure they get there on time because social distancing is no excuse to be a bad son or daughter. And the other thing I would say is encourage graduates. I mean, this is graduation season for a lot of college seniors. And and just because they won't get their traditional commitment, which I know is a huge disappointment and a huge rite of passage, doesn't mean that you can't give them advice as they enter the world of adulthood. Well, you've been listening to Erin Haynes. She's editor-at-large for the 19th. Uh, Erin, we're really grateful that you'd spend the time with us today. Thanks for coming. So glad to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sarah Cliff, investigative reporter at The New York Times. Sarah, many thanks to you. Yeah, same to you. Thank you. Ben White, Politico's chief economic correspondent and author of the Morning Money column. Uh, Ben, great to have you. Thanks for your reporting today. Great to be here, Jane. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And listeners, thanks to you. Take care. Have a good weekend. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions – And explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.